On February 24th, 2022, the world changed. In the bitter winter chill of that morning, Russian artillery and airstrikes began pummeling Ukrainian cities. And Russian soldiers, tens of thousands of them, began pouring across the borders into Ukraine. Many of the Russian invaders, including many of those coming in on warships from the Black Sea, started focusing their firepower on the port city of Mariupol. This is the largest city between Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, which Russia annexed back in 2014, and the Donbass territories in eastern Ukraine, which Russia has been at war over and controlled parts of since 2014 as well. Mariupol is in between those two Russian-controlled areas, and one urgent goal in this year's invasion was for Russia to connect those two regions. It wanted a land bridge, holding it all together. So conquering Mariupol for Russia was a high priority. Mariupol also has oversized economic importance because of its massive role in shipping exports and imports. And the Russians also knew that conquering this port city would give them full control over the Sea of Azov. So within hours of the start of the invasion, Russian forces were attacking Mariupol. And soon they were devoting thousands of Marines and other soldiers to their attempt to conquer it. Well, we all know by now that the Russians encountered more resistance in Ukraine than they had anticipated. Far more resistance. Some Russian commanders actually told their troops just before the invasion that they would be greeted like liberators, welcomed by Ukrainians with flowers and cheers, especially in Russian-speaking Ukrainian cities such as Mariupol. And many of the Russian troops believed this because Russian propaganda has for years been conditioning them to think that Ukrainians have no faith in their independent state and that the Ukrainians wanted Russia to annex them. But of course that wasn't true, and that's not how it turned out. When the Russians arrived, the Ukrainians saw them not as liberators, but as savage invaders, thieves, come not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. The Ukrainians understood that Vladimir Putin's Russia wanted to erase Ukraine off the map and absorb it completely into Russia. We're fighting for our land, for our people. We're fighting for our liberty, for our very uh, right to exist as a nation. That's Mr. Taraz Revonets. He is an analyst based in Kyiv, Ukraine, the capital. He spoke to The Sun Also Rises yesterday, and he explained that he and other Ukrainians saw clearly that Vladimir Putin aimed to destroy their democracy and anything unique about their culture. He aimed to make Ukraine just another part of the vast and bleak Russian Federation. Revenets and other Ukrainians recognized that the Russian system brings more misery and suffering to its people than Western systems. So instead of greeting the Russian soldiers with flowers and cheers, it was bullets and bombs. It was Molotov cocktails from Ukrainian civilians and weaponized hobby drones. And from Ukrainian military forces, there was every imaginable kind of counterattack. The Ukrainians put up lion-hearted resistance against every inch of their land that the invaders tried to take. Mr. Gerald Fleury hosts the Key of David program here on KPCG-FM. 
and he spoke about Russia's war on February 26th, saying that the example of the Ukrainians fighting against the murderous Russians is one that we can all learn from and one that we should be inspired by. He said, quote, I think that when you see the way the people in Ukraine are fighting, I think that it might help the Israelite nations learn to stand up and fight more. So he's talking there about the people of America and Britain mainly. And Mr. Fleury continues saying, quote, just to see people say, okay, this is my country. I love it and I'll die for it. That's quite a wonderful attitude on the secular level anyhow. I think we can learn from that, end quote. So the Ukrainians have really fought in a remarkable and inspiring way, risking their lives and giving so many of their lives to defend their nation. And they've resisted every acre, every square foot of territory that the Russians have tried to take. And the Ukrainian city of Mariupol has been the most stunning example of this. So in this episode of The Sun Also Rises, we'll talk about the defenders of Mariupol, Ukraine, and the inspiring fight that they put up against evil. For the first week of the war, Ukrainian ground forces defended Mariupol, along with the nation's naval infantry and reserves and some irregular forces, and also the Azov Battalion. We'll discuss more details about this last group later. But even though electricity, gas, and water were cut off to Mariupol, these Ukrainians continued to fight valiantly. The data shows that the Ukrainians took down six or more Russian soldiers for each one of their own casualties. But the Russians did have greater numbers, and they just kept coming and coming. Russian leaders historically have been utterly unconcerned about the value of their soldiers' lives. When they face an enemy force that's better armed and better trained, they've often thrown soldier after soldier at it until the enemy is grinded down and overwhelmed just by the sheer number of Russian soldiers. Both of the world wars show that strategy clearly. And over the last three months, Russian President Vladimir Putin has been carrying on this time-honored Russian military tradition in places like Mariupol. So under Putin's orders, Russian artillery kept pummeling the city and Russian soldiers kept pouring in. By early March, Russia had thousands of soldiers assigned to subduing this one city and they had it completely surrounded. And these Russians were absolutely indiscriminate in their attacks. They were just as quick to bomb women and children as Ukrainian soldiers. About 20,000 people dying as a result of all this insane, um, absolutely diabolical, uh, indiscriminate bombing that the Russians committed. And so it was, it was truly heartbreaking for me here in Kiev to watch. Every time I, I saw you know, footage coming out of Mariupol, it just broke my heart. And the mayor of Mariupol, Vadim Boyachenko, also reported that on March 2nd, the Russians started actively preventing civilians from evacuating the city. Russia apparently wanted to kill or capture as many as possible. So in many cases, they would not let them leave. And in many cases, the Russians intentionally targeted these civilians. This is not just uh, the uh, collateral damage to the uh, warfare. It's not. 
It's the precisely made operation to kill as much Ukrainians as possible. That's Ila Samoylenko, a Ukrainian officer. He was speaking from inside of a bunker in Mariupol on April 21st. He explained that the Russians just kept shelling the city and bombing it and sending more and more soldiers to kill and subdue the Ukrainians, whether you are talking about soldiers or civilians, by whatever means they could. They don't, they don't bother themselves with the variety of methods. They use everything that they got. They use airstrikes, they use bombs, they use freefall bombs for indiscriminate bombings. Every day, the situation in Mariupol is, is very dangerous. Analysts believe that about 21,000 of Mariupol's pre-war population of 450,000 people have been killed by the Russians since February 24th. And then the British newspaper I has published a report showing that another 95,000 of Mariupol's people have so far been illegally deported to camps and cities across Russia. This is a very serious war crime, according to the 1949 Geneva Conventions. It's illegal to mass transfer civilians during a conflict to the territory of the occupying power. But we know that Russia is suffering a demographic collapse right now. Their own people are not multiplying at rates that can, you know, sustain the population. So now to mitigate that, Putin is saying, war crime or not, let's abduct these Ukrainian children and others and force them to live in remote parts of Russia, and then our population will get stronger. So the Russians were targeting Mariupol with stunning amounts of manpower and firepower, and soon the remaining Ukrainian soldiers were forced inside a factory called the Azovstal Iron and Steel Works. The soldiers, including Ila Samoylenko, who we just heard there, and a large number of civilians took refuge in this Azovstal plant, surrounded by Russians and under heavy fire. So the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol was actually built during the era of the Soviet Union. That was the time when Russia and Ukraine, along with 13 other nations, were all pounded into one under the Soviet hammer. It was a political and military juggernaut that spanned from 1922 to 1991, all under the control of the Russian leader. And very early in that era, back in the year 1930, the Soviets began building the Azovstal steel mill in Mariupol. And they made it a massive complex full of tunnels and bunkers, and much of it was actually designed to withstand nuclear attacks. Nuclear weapons were first developed by the United States and used in 1945, and the Soviets stole the technology from America and tested their own bomb in 1949. And then by the mid-1950s, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union had huge arsenals of these unfathomably destructive weapons. So many that it was believed that all human life could be wiped out, perhaps several times over. So the Azovstal steel plant was upgraded over the years with those nuclear weapons in mind. And many of its bunkers and tunnels were built to endure nuclear strikes. So that means that when the Ukrainian soldiers this year took shelter inside Azovstal, they knew that they were in a place that was extremely defensible 
in a place that was not going to be easy for the Russians to penetrate. By mid-March, Mariupol was fully surrounded by Russia. And that meant the Ukrainians inside were cut off from all regular supply lines. But Mariupol's defenders refused to give up. And while pro-Russian media began talking about these forces hiding out in the bunkers of Azovstal, that wasn't the reality. The reality was that night after night, week after week, some of the Ukrainian forces would leave the plant through any of its dozens and dozens of exits. And they would ambush the Russian invaders and counterattack and resist the Russians in every way they could. Russia was ready to move on. They knew there couldn't be many soldiers left in Mariupol and that they had essentially won the city by bombing it to rubble. So they wanted to advance north and start devoting more manpower to Kyiv, the capital, and to Kharkiv and to other areas. But the problem with this plan was that the Ukrainians in the Azovstal steelworks were not ready to move on. Even though they were surrounded by a numerically and technologically superior force, and even though their supply lines were largely dried up, they kept on fighting day after day and week after week. And they kept on tying up great numbers of Russian soldiers. Soldiers that Putin wanted to be free to send elsewhere. Despite the accusations of the Russian ministers and Russian president uh, that they took control over the city, yes, uh, this statement was made today. But you know what? They do not control all the all of the city. We still control the Azovstal steelworks, and uh, we're still fighting. We destroyed one tank today, uh, two armored fighting vehicles, and one armored personal carrier. And the numbers of enemy losses are still increasing. That's Ilya Samoylenko once again. He is a Ukrainian officer in the Azov Battalion. And it's important to point out that this battalion is often accused of being a far-right and even a neo-Nazi outfit. So this battalion was formed in 2014, just after Putin's Russia first invaded Ukraine. It was established to resist the Russians and the Russian proxies who were fighting in the Donbass. At this time, the Ukrainian military was hollowed out after many years of being ruled by the, you know, the really deeply corrupt former president Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych had been in Putin's pocket, and he seemed to actively work against building a strong Ukrainian military. So after that invasion in 2014, since Ukraine's national military was in bad shape, many volunteer militias sprang up to defend the country, and one of those was the Azov Battalion. It is true that one of the founders of Azov, Andriy Beletsky, holds white supremacist views, and he has ties with neo-Nazi groups in Russia and in Europe. And in the early months after the group's formation, it attracted some seedy characters. So that is part of the origins of the group, and it is disturbing. But by the fall of 2014, Yanukovych had been replaced by a pro-Ukrainian president who built up the nation's military. And the Azov Battalion at that time was incorporated into Ukraine's National Guard. And Drilly Beletsky and others of that ilk were ousted, and Azov's ranks since then have been drawn from the regular nationwide pool of military and National Guard recruits. 
No doubt there are still some disturbed characters in the ranks, as there are with, you know, all nations, militaries, and even general populations. But the Azov Battalion today has many Jewish people among its ranks, and also Muslims and all kinds of other minorities, many ethnic Russians as well. Its membership is drawn from the regular nationwide pool of recruits, so it's no longer at all logical to call the Azov Battalion out for racism or for other accusations along those lines. So anyway, that's a bit of a tangent, but I think it requires some attention since there are persistent misconceptions there, and they are misconceptions that end up playing into the Russians' hands with its propaganda war. But returning to the story, as we just heard in the clip from Azov Battalion officer Ilya Samoylenko, even after the Russians had completely surrounded Mariupol and laid siege to it and had taken the rest of the city, even after all of that, Samoylenko and the other Ukrainian soldiers inside Azovstal Steelworks refused to surrender. That statement that Samoylenko issued was from April 21st. And that was around the same time that Russia issued a surrender-or-die ultimatum to the Mariupol defenders. Russia told them they had just a few hours to lay down their arms if they wanted to keep their lives. But the soldiers didn't waver. There were somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 of them inside the steel plant at this time, and many of those were wounded. And then there were also thousands of civilians, many of them parents and grandparents with young children. And these people in the steel plant had virtually no access to medicine, water, or electricity. It was terribly cold for much of this time as well. And there are reports that the people would sneak outside to grab snow and bring it inside to melt it into drinking water. So it was a terribly bleak situation. Around this same time, Mariupol crossed a grim milestone becoming the most thoroughly destroyed European city since the bombing of Dresden back in 1945. Here's Revenets once again. They got hammered with the apocalyptic fire, apocalyptic, uh, you know, these giant bombs, two or, th- two or three tons, like, it's, it's crazy. It's, you know, stuff that you see in movies, not in the real world. But here in Ukraine, it's, you know, the, the worst uh, movies, uh, you know, became a reality. So this was a terribly bleak situation. But despite all this, the Ukrainian soldiers continued to hold the Azovstal plant. And they continued sneaking out of different exits of the complex labyrinth of the steel plant's tunnels to attack the Russian occupiers. Here's Samoylenko once again, in, in that message that he recorded on April 21st. We still control the Azovstal steelworks, and uh, we're still fighting. We destroyed one tank today, uh, two armored fighting vehicles, and one armored personal carrier. And the numbers of enemy losses are still increasing. So as I said, that was April 21st, when this Ukrainian officer, Samoylenko, recorded that video message. And you can actually hear the explosions in the background there. Those are Russian bombs being dropped on the Azovstal plant. But Samoylenko and the other soldiers were not deterred by that. They held their ground and kept on counterattacking. And as I mentioned, every day that they held out 
was another day that Putin's murderous forces were depleting supplies and another day that they couldn't turn their attention elsewhere. Here's Revonets once again. If it went for Mariupol, had uh, Mariupol fallen early on, all those troops from the south would have been right over here in the Kiev area. And Kiev uh, would have been next. Kiev would have been, uh, you know, obliterated, raised to the ground, had it not been for Mariupol holding out for this long. The Mariupol defenders were tying up thousands of Russian soldiers. So their resistance and their refusal to surrender forced Russia to expend all kinds of resources and to burn through a great deal of munitions, bombs that could not penetrate the formidable bunkers of the steel factory. And all this made a massive difference in the overall war. I'll just read a bit here from the May 24th edition of the Las Vegas Sun. It says, These brave men and women changed the course of the war and their nation's history. By preventing the eastern and southern fronts of the war from being joined early, they slowed the Russian invasion, prevented the expansion of Russian supply lines, and redeployment of Russian troops into other areas of Ukraine. And they forced Putin and the Kremlin to make a monumental investment of resources to take the city. They also bought time for Ukraine to seek and receive foreign aid, reposition key assets, and allow thousands of civilians to escape to the West. So the Mariupol defenders did allow time for many of the civilians of the city to evacuate. They bought time so that some diplomatic efforts could finally bear fruit and open up some civilian escape corridors. And the willingness of the soldiers to fight to the death was also a stinging rebuke to all of that Russian propaganda that has long said Ukrainians, particularly those in Russian-speaking cities like Mariupol, didn't have faith in their government and wanted to be quote-unquote liberated by Russia. Every day of resistance was a humiliating negation of that Russian propaganda. And there are actually some signs inside of Russia that more people are beginning to doubt some aspects of the propaganda that their government feeds them, thanks largely to resistance by the Ukrainians. Well, this went on for weeks and weeks, and more and more of the Russian soldiers were dying, but so were the Ukrainians. And then after more than 80 days of defending Mariupol, on May 16th, the Ukrainian military ordered these diehard Ukrainian soldiers to surrender. And the next day they were taken into Russian custody. That ended the most protracted battle so far in this war. And it means the Mariupol defenders now face an uncertain future. There's talk of Russia possibly exchanging them for Russian POWs that Ukraine has captured. But there are also fears that after so many weeks of staggering resistance and such a humiliation for Russia, that Putin now has a special hatred for these soldiers. So there are fears that they won't be traded and could face who knows what atrocities. Taraz Revenet said that if he could speak to these Mariupol defenders right now, these men and women who helped his nation so selflessly, he would tell them this. 
<sighs> Come back home safely. Come back alive. Thank you so much. We'll never be able to uh, thank you enough. We uh, we owe you a debt we can never fully repay. Just like that. I, I want all of them to come back home to their families. Some very sobering words there, showing just the deepest gratitude for what these Mariupol defenders did. And I'd like to read through a few statements from a few other Ukrainians and others who are deeply grateful for the sacrifice of the Mariupol defenders. These are taken from various articles and social media posts. Here's one from Mikhailo Podolyak. He's one of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's top advisors. And he said, quote, 83 days of Mariupol defense will go down in history as the Thermopylae of the 21st century. So he's referring there to the famous battle back in 480 BC, when a small Greek force held its ground against an exponentially larger Persian army. Mr. Podolyak continued saying, the Mariupol defenders ruined Russia's plan to capture the east of Ukraine, took a hit on themselves and proved the real combat capability of Russia. This completely changed the course of the war, he says. Here's another one from Thurman Johnson. He wrote, their bravery, determination, and willingness to fight on, even when confronted with overwhelming odds, well, it is already a thing of legend, and that legend will grow. And then here's a little more from the Las Vegas Sun. The Ukrainian fighters are heroes who were left with few supplies and even fewer options, and they changed the course of the war in Ukraine, and just maybe the course of the global fight for liberty, democracy, and self-determination. As of the time of the broadcasting of this episode, the fate of the Mariupol defenders is still unknown. It's still not clear whether Russia will be willing to trade them or not. But what is clear is that these troops risked their lives to stand up against evil and to stand for something bigger than themselves. And a great many of them lost their lives doing it. But their sacrifice and resolve changed the course of Russia's barbaric war. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much also to Mr. Taraz Revenets for his contributions to the show. If you have any comments, please send those to tsar at kpcg.fm. And I'll leave you once again with those words from Mr. Gerald Flurry. I think that when you see the way the people in Ukraine are fighting, I think that it might help the Israelite nations to learn to stand up and fight more. Just to see people say, okay, this is my country, I love it, and I'll die for it. That is quite a wonderful attitude, on the secular level, anyhow. I think we can learn from that. <laughs>